Tonight I'd like to look at the first five verses of 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. This, Lord willing, will be our 17th message on the life of David. And this will, at the time being, at least, will be our last message on his life. Not that there are not many more that can be, uh, you know, brought forth concerning his life, but um, I think we might see why as we look into this this evening. But anyway, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, it says, beginning in verse 1, Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said. And when it says these be the last words of David, we know these were not literally the last words of David, because there's 24 chapters in 2 Samuel. So we have some other events in David's life. And then in 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2, we have a few more events in David's life, and then we have the recording of his death in the second chapter of 1 Kings. But these are the last words of David from the standpoint of being the last days of David. Also, I think we'll see that these are the last words that David spake by divine inspiration. So these be the last words of David. Now, it's very interesting to me to read the last words of men, especially men who are highly thought of and highly respected. We read the last words of Joshua, for example, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. Remember those words? When he told Israel, choose you this day whom you shall serve, whether it be the God of the Amorites or the God of your fathers the other side of the floods or the God of the Amorites whose land you dwell. He said, but as far as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now that is so well known, you will find it, you know, um, framed and hanging on walls in people's homes in different places. The Apostle Paul spoke some words that are very significant in his last words. We find recorded in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7 and 8, when he says that uh, the time of my departure has come. He says, now I fought a good fight, I finished my course, and I kept the faith. Henceforth there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me, whom the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give at that day, and not for me only, but for all those who love his appearing. Those are some of Paul's last words. They likewise are sometimes found on tombstones of faithful men of God. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I kept the faith. Three very important things uh, that each and every one of us, hopefully, when we leave this world, somebody can say that about us, especially ministers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. That's what his last sayings, the last seven things that Christ said, seven expressions that we find him speaking while he's hanging upon the cross just before he laid down his life. Two of which, when he said, it is finished, John 19, 30. And then the Lord spoke to the Father. He says, in thy hands I commend my spirit. Uh, those are some of the last words of Jesus Christ. And each of those expressions certainly are very worth a while your study and meditation on and very worthwhile preaching from. So the last words of men are very, very important. These be the last words of David. Now in our last message, we left David 
you might say back in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and we studied his life where he submitted to the temptations of the flesh. And being in the wrong place at the wrong time, you might say, he saw the beauty of a woman. And David yielded to that temptation. He sent and took her, a woman named Bathsheba. He committed an adulterous act with Bathsheba. And then to cover his sin, he had her husband Uriah put on the forefront of the battle in which he died. And God charged him with the death of Uriah as well as the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Now, in the beginning, David tried to cover his sin. Well, like Solomon wrote years later, even his son wrote in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 16, he says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. But whosoever confesseth and forsaketh his sin shall find mercy. Now we find David on both ends of that verse. In the beginning he tried to cover his sin. And he was unsuccessful. You may cover your sin from the eyes of men, but you obviously never cover them from the eyes of God. He tried to cover his sins and he did not prosper. But later in David's life, David confessed his sin. Psalms 51 is a very important psalm that David wrote concerning this uh, series of events that I'm talking about. And we find that God forgave David, and God pardoned David, and God spared the life of David, and all of that, showing great mercy upon him. But there's a lesson here. You may receive forgiveness, and that's important, but the consequence of actions will still need to be played out. And so David was going to suffer the consequences of his actions with Bathsheba and Uriah. Even though God spared his life, even though God had mercy upon him, even though God forgave him, even though God pardoned him, we find that David had sown to the wind, he was going to serve or going to reap the whirlwind. Now chapters 13 through 18, leading up to where we are tonight, uh, you will read many details of the uh, consequences that David experienced because of those actions. You're going to find in these chapters that his house, his family, his children are going to, uh, you know, have a great deal of um, uh, negative results that's going to take place in their lives. You're going to read about murder. You're going to read about deceit. You're going to read about treachery. You're going to read about sexual sins. You're going to read about deceit and lying. All those things begin to take place and David's house begins to crumble. These consequences... It came about as David, uh, the sinful behavior that he had with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. Now, we come here to, toward the end of David's life, and these be the last words of David. I want you to notice it's almost like two men are speaking here. And uh, he says, these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said. That almost sounds like two men, doesn't it? One of them is named David, and the other one just says, and the man. <laughs> but David is, the, uh, is both of these that's under consideration here. These be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said. Now here you find where David reaches back to his origin, to his beginning. And then he's going to reach forward to what happened to him. 
He will describe it like this. And the man who was raised up on high, well, that's David. The anointed of the God of Jacob, that's David. And the sweet psalmist of Israel said, that's David. David looks back and he looks forward. And he's covering his life in these two expressions. It's important for us tonight to look back. It's important for us tonight to look back where we came from, to our origin, to our beginning. And we're all just Adam multiplied. We can take it all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to Adam and Eve. We find that Adam transgressed God's law and sin came into the world. As a result of that, we're all sinners by nature. We never need to forget that. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We never need to forget that. That's, that's our origin, that's our beginning. And Romans 5.12, wherefore by one man sin in the world and death by sin and death passed upon all men for all have sinned. We need to take a look. See, we start off by David saying that he's the son of Jesse. Now, who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of eight sons. David was the youngest. Were it not for David, we've never heard of Jesse. <laughs> Went for Jesse, we've never heard of David. <laughs> but we hear about Jesse because he is the father of David. But Jesse and his family was an ordinary Jewish family. A long ways from royalty, you might say. Even Saul did not even know who Jesse was. Whenever David slew Goliath and the battle was over, he asked the question, whose son is he? And Abner says, I know not who his, who, who his, his, his father is. You see, he was totally unknown. Now, in the 51st chapter of Isaiah, the Lord speaks to the nation of Israel. And he says, hearken unto me, all ye that follow after righteousness, and ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock from which you are hewn, and the hole of the pit from which you are dug. And the next verse tells us who the rock is and, and who the, the pit is. It says, Abraham your father, and Sarah that bear you. He tells them, look all the way back to your origin. Look all the way back to your beginning. When you go back to Genesis chapter 12, we have Abraham referred to as Abram. And Abram's living in the land of there are the Chaldees, him and his wife Sarah. They have no children. The Lord's going to call him from that land of idolatry to a land, uh, of course, to Canaan, and instructs him to leave his kindred, leave that part of the country, the land of his nativity, and to go to a land that he will show him. That's the beginning of the nation of Israel. When Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 51.1, Israel has multiplied like the stars of heaven, like the sea by the sand shore. Uh, sea, sea by the sand shore. Sea by the, sand by the seashore. Get right in a minute. <laughs> sand by the seashore. How did that happen? We go back and stir the life. Abraham, when he finally has a child, he's 80, his Sarah is uh, 86 years old. And when you have Isaac, Abraham's 100 and Sarah is 90. And Abraham's body was dead. Abraham's, Sarah's womb was dead. So he's telling Israel, I want you to look back. I want to see where you came. You need to see where you came from. You need to see where I took you out of a rock and I hewed you and I took you out of the pit where I dug you. <laughs> and I formed you and created you and made you this nation that you are. So he says here, David, these be the last words of David. 
David, the son of Jesse. He could have just said David said, but he said the son of Jesse for a reason. He said the son of Jesse, an unknown person, just an ordinary Jewish man in that day who God had blessed to have a, a large family. He had eight sons. But then he speaks in this tone. And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, David never promoted himself. David always felt unworthy of the blessings that he had received at the hand of God. In general, David was clothed with humility. Now, there were exceptions. We've seen some of those exceptions, right? But David always recognized that he wasn't worthy of the blessings of God. Now, if you turn to Psalm 78, the last three verses, 70 through 72, it says this, And the Lord chose David his servant and anointed him and brought him from the sheepfolds where he followed the ewes both great and young to feed his people Jacob and to guide his people Israel. Now notice God chose and God delivered and God brought David. Where did he find David? He found him as a shepherd. He found him as a, a young shepherd watching over his father's sheep on the hillsides of Bethlehem. That's where God found him. And then God elevated him. Remember, he's the eighth son of Jesse. An, an unknown uh, Jewish family, uh, even to Saul and to you know, those who were in positions of power and authority, but not unknown, unknown to God. Now, this has always been God's pattern. This has been God's work. He did that with Moses. Uh, take a look at Moses when we first read about him. When Moses is born, his mother and father put him in an ark. Uh, they make an ark just large enough to put him in and put him into the river and the bulrushes. Now, 80 years later, that same little baby is going to be an 80-year-old man on the backside of a desert, and God's going to send him back to Egypt to bring his people out of that land, out of captivity and out of bondage. What do you think the odds are of something like that? Took him, and you couldn't have been in a more perilous position. We find Moses, a little baby, in an ark in the bulrushes in the river, under the decree by Pharaoh that all the male Hebrew children were to be drowned. That's where he's at. You can't get closer to death than that. And God brings Moses from that point of near death. He's going to bring him out of that, eventually exalt him, send him back to Egypt, bring his people out of there, and Moses becomes the great prophet and the great deliverer of the nation of Israel. God took a man by the name of Gideon. One day Gideon is threshing wheat by the wine press under the oak tree. Israel's in captivity to the Amalekites. An angel comes to him and says, God has selected you to deliver his people out of here. And Gideon responds by saying, who am I? <laughs> you know, uh, who, who am I that would be able to do this? And God gives him assurance. He reassures him that he's the one that God's going to use to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Malachites. They've been in bondage to the Malachites for seven years. Gideon went down to thresh wheat like he did every single day, not knowing that hand of God was going to be put upon him, and God delivered him to that position to be a great military man who delivered his people out of the bondage of the Malachites. The Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest example of all. Born wrapped in swathing clothes and laid in a manger. 
And that little baby you see laying in a manger one day will die on Calvary, on the cross, uh, die on a cross there in Calvary. And that man will deliver an entire people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue that belong to Almighty God and deliver them from the curse and the bondage, the law of sin and death to bring them home to glory one sweet day. Now, God takes David from the sheepfold. That's where he was at. He took him from the sheepfold. And God reminded David of that on several occasions, several passages of Scripture, saying basically the same thing, where God communicated to David and reminded him who God was, who he was, where he was at, and how he got to where he was at. And so David refers to that. Notice the language once again. And the man who was raised up on high. It was God who exalted David, the anointed of the God of Jacob. You read about this anointing back in 1 Samuel 16. That's when God, you know, sent Samuel to the household of Jesse. And Jesse had these eight sons, and God has told him, he says, look not upon uh, his statue or his countenance. That's how man looks. He said, but God looks upon the heart, and God revealed unto him that it would be David, the eighth child, whom Jesse had dismissed. Jesse says, uh, you know, he brought, starting with the oldest, he brought the first seven. And David, uh, Samuel asked him, did he have another? He says, well, yeah, but he's the youngest. He's keeping sheep. In other words, that's two reasons why I didn't bring him. (laughs) That's the way man thinks. He says, he's too young, number one. He's a keeper of sheep, number two. Uh, I didn't think about bringing him. He said, well, let's, let's bring him out here, too. And he brought him out there, and God enabled Samuel to recognize that this is the one who was a man after God's own heart. God chose David and elevated David. And then he tells Samuel to anoint him. And we read about the anointing, where Samuel anoints David, and after anointing him, it says, the Spirit of God came upon him. <laughs> the Spirit of God now is going to empower David to be the man that we read, have read about and studied over these last number of weeks. So now we come to the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man that was um, raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said. Now, we see the word said used twice. David, the son of Jesse, said, and then he that was exalted, the anointed uh, of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said. They're the same man, of course. And the word said here in the Hebrew, these two words, the, the word said that's used two times here in the Hebrew means it's said with assurance and power and authority. This was not spoken in doubt, in other words. This was spoken firmly. This was spoken with power and authority and with assurance. Now, it says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. Now, we believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture for many different reasons, but here's a verse that teaches that, that great truth and that principle. Second Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Well, David wrote at least 73 Psalms. Of the 150 Psalms, we find where David is the human writer to at least 73 of them, probably more, but at least to 73 of them. But this is the last psalm. Now you say, well, it's not in the book of Psalms. No, it's not. But it's the last words of David written by divine inspiration right here. That's another reason why it says these be the last words of David. 
So he says, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me. The Spirit spake, but it spake by David. And his word was where? His word was in my tongue. Now, in 2 Peter 1.21, it says, Wherefore in times past, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God. Notice what kind of men? Holy men of God. Not just men, and not just men of God, but holy men of God. Spake how? As they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What all this is teaching us, and we could use other verses to support this, of course, is that when God moved upon a human writer to write his word, he moved upon him so powerfully that he revealed unto him his word, and he wrote his word down with complete, 100% total accuracy to reveal the mind and the words of God. Now, I believe that with all my heart. I mean, why would I have a hard time believing that? Since I believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, why would I have a hard time in believing that God could give us his word by divine inspiration and use human beings, human writers, to pin his word down 100% accurately the Word of God is inerrant, it's inspired and preserved. I have no problem believing that. If I don't believe God can do that, what hope do I have of coming out of the grave one day? <laughs> you ever think about things like that? If I have doubts about that, why, how would I have such great assurance that one day I'll experience a resurrection? That one day my body will come out of the grave and be resurrected and glorified and fashioned like the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I cannot believe that the word of God is inspired and preserved and in error, then how can I believe in the resurrection? It all goes together, doesn't it? See, there's nothing difficult or hard for God to do. David says, the spirit of the Lord spake by me. And his word was in my tongue. Now, in just a minute or two, we're going to see where God spake to him. But this verse says he spake by him. God spoke by David, just like he spoke by Paul, just like he spoke by Peter, just like he spoke by John and James and Mark and Luke and Matthew and John. He spake by all these men. When you read these words, these men pinned the words down, but they pinned down the words that God moved upon them to pin down with complete and total 100% accuracy. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. In verse 3, he says, The God of Israel said. Now, David, the son of Jesse, said, and David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, but now the Bible says, and, and God said. <laughs> you know, when you read the Psalms, it's, it's miraculous to me in those 73 Psalms, at least 73 that David wrote. How all the experiences that David had in his, li in his lifetime, in his earthly journey, so many of them are referred to in these Psalms. God inspired David to write about his own life, inspired David to write about his own experiences. And when God inspired David to write about his own life and his own experiences, God didn't just whitewash it. <laughs> he wrote about the good, but he wrote about the bad. He wrote about the victories, he wrote about the defeats. He wrote about success, he wrote about his failures. That 51st Psalm where David prays to God and asked God for forgiveness... 
what a psalm that is and, and how beneficial it is for God's children today. You know, in James 5 and 13, it says, if any be sick, let him call for the elders. If any afflicted, you know what he tells them to do? He says, let him sing psalms. <laughs> the psalms are to be sung by the afflicted. There must be a benefit in that, right? There must be a benefit to sing the psalms. In fact, the psalms was the early Christian's hymn book. They didn't have a hymn book like we got tonight. All these hymns were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. But they sang psalms, especially psalms from about 110 to 118. That became the Christian's hymn book, the believer's hymn book in the early days. So he says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. Now, it didn't speak by me. Here's where it says it spake to me. Notice where he says, the God of Israel and the rock of Israel. God and rock, both are the same here. In the Old Testament day, a rock referred to as an image of God for the stability, you know, of a rock. Uh, rocks, I'm not talking about small rocks here now. I'm talking about great boulders. <laughs> great boulders that were permanent and they could not be moved. And God used them as a picture of himself in many different ways. Deuteronomy 32, 4, for he's the rock. Moses is writing this. He's the rock. His work is perfect. A God of truth without iniquity, just and right is he. I think about that every now and then because when Moses wrote that, Moses already knew God was not going to let him go to the land of Canaan. He knew already God was not going to permit him to go into the land of Canaan. And if anybody seemed like ought to got a pass, <laughs> it seemed like to me Moses should have. Who had had to deal with an obstinate, stiff-necked, and rebellious people for 40 years. Who murmured and complained on a regular basis. Who was a thorn in Moses' side to the point where Moses even cried to God that God might take his life. But because he failed to sanctify God at that rock, remember that. The first time he sends Moses to the rock, he tells Moses to smite the rock and water came out and furnished water, a water supply for all of Israel and their animals and their beasts and took care of it. It came a second time. But this time God tells Moses, he says, you speak to the rock this time. But Moses in his anger smote the rock. Now God still blessed water to come out of the rock. There's a lesson in that. You know that? Uh, God sometimes will bless a man not for the man's sake. He blesses the man for the sheep's sake. <laughs> and so God blessed his sheep, his people, even though Moses failed to sanctify him and disobeyed him when he smote the rock the second time. See, Christ was smitten once. Christ will never be smitten the second time. And God told Moses he would not go into the land of Canaan. That was the consequence. Yet what does Moses say here? He is the rock. His work is perfect. His work is perfect. A God of truth without iniquity, just and right is he. He says God is just and God is right. Speaking uh, to my friend Rico just uh, earlier this week, and his mother has been in hospice care for, for several months now, and, and surprisingly, they, everyone thought she would pass away a long time before now. But once again, that just shows what man knows. You know, these things are in the hand of God, and he, he just had some you know things he couldn't understand about. It. And I said, Rico, just remember this: Romans twelve two, 
where Paul writes to the church at Rome. He says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed as to what is that, and by the renewing of your mind, as to that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Here's three things about God's will that you need to always remember. It's good, it's perfect, and it's acceptable. Whether I understand it or not, I know it's good. Whether I understand it or not, I know it's perfect. Whether I understand it or not, I know it's acceptable. And so there's some things I'm not going to understand that happen in this life. But that's okay because I know God's will is good, it's perfect, and it is acceptable. And I'm, I'm going to put my trust in his hands. What about you? I, I think God knows a, a whole lot more than I do. He knows the individuals. He knows their circumstances, their situations in total perfection. His will is good. It is perfect and it's acceptable. And when I keep that in mind, it helps me become reconciled to many things that happen here in this world and this life. He says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. Isaiah 32, 1 and 2 has always been special to me. For the prophet Isaiah speaking about a day, in that day, he's speaking about a future day, he's talking about the day that we're in, the gospel day. He said, a king shall reign in righteousness. Now there could only be one that that would fit, right? And that's Jesus Christ. A king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, as a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Now he pictures Christ here as that supply of water, as that refuge, and as that great rock in a weary land. The land we live in is indeed a weary land, but we have the benefit of the shadow of a great rock here as we travel in this world. We have the benefit of a water supply in a dry land. A man should be as a hiding place from the wind, the wind of affliction, the winds of adversity, the winds of corruption that are blowing ferociously. It seems like every day there's still a hiding place for the Lord's people. Aren't you glad of that? I'm sure you are. <laughs> the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. And notice what God said. He that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. He's going to set the perfect standard. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. David's going to use a metaphor here of light, sunshine, and rain. A man that ruleth, he that ruleth over me and must be just ruling in the fear of God. Now that's true whether we're talking about civil you know, men ruling in, in, uh, from a civil perspective or an ecclesiastical perspective. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. All men don't do that, do they? I know one that does. See, men, rulers of men rule just for specified periods of time, oftentimes short periods of time. And they rule over just certain portions of mankind. But God Almighty rules all the time. He rules over all men all the time. You can mark that down. That's why he's called in the Old Testament the Most High uh, in many different places. So he's stating this here. This is what God is saying unto David. 
He that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. He shall be as the light of the morning. Something special about, to me, about sunrise. After going through a, the night in the darkness. Now, if I got my preference, I'd rather have light than darkness, hadn't you? <laughs> but it's necessary to have both, isn't it? But when the nighttime begins to end and, and then the sun rises in the morning, it's just something very special about that. Especially if it's been a stormy night, you know, and, and the sun rises. That's how he, he's given this analogy here. He should be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even the morning without clouds. We're talking about a perfect picture here. No, no clouds in the sky. As the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. This earth, the, no one can live on this earth without sunshine and rain. They both are completely necessary, aren't they? You've got to have sunshine and you've got to have rain. Notice that's what the Lord says over here in Matthew 5, 45 in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, God shall cause his son, and I want you to notice he says his, H-I-S, not the son, but his son. He shall cause his son to shine upon the good and the evil and sendeth rain upon the just and the unjust. You got the sun and you got the rain. We couldn't live on the earth without sunshine. We couldn't live on the earth without rain. We got to have a combination of both. And God has so graciously provided it for about 6,000 years. I guess the most... Uh, uh, the number one topic of conversation for mankind down through the centuries has been the weather. Don't you reckon? <laughs> when you can't think of anything else, you can talk about the weather. Just like you can do something about it. You know, boy, we sure need some rain. Well, you can't cause it, but you can pray to one who can. <laughs> you know, we're always talking about the weather. We have weathermen and weatherwomen <laughs> on television giving the weather all the time. Every morning, I, I get my watch out, you know, and, and look on here for the weather. I want to know the exact temperature, and I can get it right then. And then I'll do it by the hour. Uh, what's it going to be at 8 a.m.? What's it going to be at 10 a.m.? What's the chances of rain? I don't know why I'm so interested in all that. <laughs> but I am. Sunshine and rain. We got to have a combination of both. But what's David's response to this? And let me just say this, when David began to reign, when he became king, began to reign, it was like sunshine compared to darkness when it comes to Saul's reign and David's reign. It presented a new beginning. David would rule far more in a just way than Saul ever did. And the nation of Israel will be highly blessed as a result of all of that. David's response, although my house be not so with God, he says that's my house hadn't been that way. David makes an honest confession here, doesn't he? Now you go back, as I've already stated, and you start reading 2 Samuel chapter 13 and work your way right on up to the very time that we're talking about here. And you're going to find where David's going to lose three sons in his family. Remember what God told David there in 2 Samuel chapter 12? He said, the sword shall never depart from thy house. Yes, his life was spared. He received forgiveness. He received pardon from God. But the consequences of his actions, the consequences of his sins still had to be played out. You see, there's a principle over here in, in the book of Galatians, in chapter 6 and verse 7. It says, Be not deceived, God shall not be mocked. 
For once of a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And he that soweth to the flesh shall reap corruption. David is sown to the flesh, and corruption was going to be reaped. And you're going to read all about it in these chapters. That's one reason why I just kind of went over them, because there would be weeks and weeks and weeks of preaching and all that, I'm sure. I'm going to leave that for you to read, okay? And you can see the consequences of all that. But God did receive mercy, and God, I mean, uh, David did receive mercy. He received forgiveness. He received a pardon. And the chapter before this one here, chapter 22, is a beautiful song that David wrote about all of his experiences. It's a very God-glorifying song. And then we come to this chapter here in the last days of David's life. And these, he says, these be the last words of David. He said, although my house be not so with God. If that's as far as we can go, we'd all be in bad shape tonight, wouldn't we? There's not a person here tonight that can look back at their life and look, where, uh, look back to the rock from which they were hewn in the pit from which uh, you were taken out of. If that's as far as you, if that's the only view you had, that's the only look you had, we'd all be pitiful here tonight for sure. But thank God there's another look. Thank God there's another look. Although my house be not so with God, yet, the yet is set in opposition to the although, although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordering all things ensure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he maketh it not to grow. You see here that God had made with David. This is a unilateral covenant. Unilateral means it's one-sided. Unilateral covenant, a unilateral covenant means this covenant, this arrangement, this covenant is depending upon only one side or one source seeing to it that everything is carried out. See, he didn't say here, for me and God made a covenant. He didn't say me and God made a covenant. He said God made with me a covenant. See, this is personal, this is individual, and this is a, a picture of a, a covenant that embraces all the family of God, all the elect of God. Everyone that God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world is embraced in the covenant relationship that's under consideration here. Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. You know what the word everlasting means? It means that which has no end to it. The covenant under consideration here is an everlasting covenant. It's not based upon conditions that man must meet. If it was, it wouldn't last any time. But it's one-sided, it's unilateral. This is an everlasting covenant that God hath made with me. The word everlasting is used uh, to describe God and God's works in many different ways. I always uh, I love Psalms 90. This is a psalm uh, that uh, the human writer was Moses in Psalms 90. He says, before the world was formed, before this earth was ever created, before the mountains and the hills were established, he says, thou art from everlasting to everlasting. And that means from a vanishing point to vanishing point. <laughs> That's the best that we can do with human language. From vanishing point to vanishing point, God is from everlasting to everlasting. And this everlasting God made an everlasting covenant based upon an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3, Therefore have I loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. John 3 and 36, the Lord Jesus Christ said, He that believeth that Jesus is the Christ hath what? Hath everlasting life. Everlasting life, everlasting love, everlasting covenant. 
What he's telling you right here is this covenant is never going to be broken. This covenant was established by God himself. And notice, notice what else he says about it. He says it's ordered in all things and sure. The word ordered here means to lay out. It means by arrangement. Everything in this covenant is orderly, in other words. <laughs> he says ordered in all things and unsure. No, sure. <laughs> Just catch you see if he's asleep. All right. Order in all things and sure. Now, how many things do you know are sure in this world? I can't think of anything except I'm sure we live in a sinful world. I'm sure of that. I'm sure there's corruption in the world. I'm sure of that. I'm sure there's a, a lot of wickedness and evil in this world. I'm sure of that. But this covenant here is ordered in all things, and it is sure. In other words, David says, as far as all my personal interests in this covenant is concerned, I'm completely satisfied. It's sure. It can never be altered. It can never be broken. It can never be diminished. It can never end. It's an everlasting covenant that he made with me. It's ordered in all things. Everything about it has been ordered by God. The total arrangement of this has been arranged by God. Ordered in all things, and it is sure. The things of God is sure. 2 Timothy 2 and 19, the foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Isaiah 28, 6, lay in Zion. A stone, a precious stone, a, a cornerstone a, for a sure foundation. We have a sure foundation. We had, the foundation of God stands sure. Why? The Lord knoweth them that are his. We find in Hebrews 6 and 19 that we have an anchor of the soul which is both sure and steadfast. And the word steadfast itself means sure. It is sure and it is sure that hope is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have a, a sure foundation. We have a sure hope tonight because everything that God's ever done, brother, has always been complete, total, perfect, and sure. He says he's made with me an everlasting covenant, ordering all things and sure, although he maketh it not to grow, which means it's never going to be changed in any way whatsoever. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he maketh it not to grow. Every phase of salvation is of the Lord, it's sure. If you're talking about justification, that's of God. If you're talking about reconciliation, that's of God. If you're talking about redemption, that's of God. If you're talking about the ransom price being paid, that's of God. If you're talking about the doctrine of propitiation, that's of God. It doesn't matter what you're talking about in each one of those points of doctrine I just mentioned, it all comes down to being the work of either God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. And when he says he makes it not to grow, this is all my salvation, it simply means this thing is so, so ordered that God Almighty, the Trinity, gets the praise and the glory and the honor for it. Now, when David came to his last days on this earth, he didn't look back to his accomplishments for comfort. He, you know, David did want to build a house, for God, he was living in a, uh, a sealed house. He was living in the finest house that man could have in that day. And the ark of God was behind curtains. And David wanted to build a permanent location for that. His, his desire was noble. It was good. But God did not permit him to do so. He did not. But you know what he told David? 
He said, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. Now, he was talking about a dynasty. He was talking about a kingdom that he was going to build him. But you know what God has done for all of us? He's, God has built us a house. 2 Corinthians 5 and 1. For we know this earthly house, this tabernacle be dissolved. We have a building of God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens above. God has built for us a mansion. John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. Not so I'd have told you so. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. Abraham looked for a city that had foundations, whose building maker is God. And in verse 10 he speaks about a country that's a better country. God is... God has provided us a country, a city, a mansion, a building not made with hands, eternal in the heavens above. I don't care what we desire to do for God, it pales in comparison to what God has done for us. David had that great desire, it was honorable, it was noble, but God said, David, he said, I'm going to build you a house. <laughs> God was pleased that David had the desire, but God built David a house. And it's called the Davidic Covenant. And it's a picture of what God has built for us and what God has done for us. These be the last words of David, what words they were.